And what a rich passage we're in this morning. It's Romans 10, 5 to 10. And some of it is what Roland just covered, almost word for word. So hear the word of the Lord from Romans 10. For Moses writes about the salvation that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That is one verse past where we're going, but it's the, uh, it's the conclusion of that thought. So, I admit and I uh, want to confess to you that I struggled in my study with this passage this week. Uh, it's a difficult passage, especially at the beginning, when, when Paul takes Moses and begins to explain what Moses is talking about in light of how the Christian today ought to live and think and believe. So struggle to frame that and to understand how do we obey it and how do we understand the Old Testament and how do we walk in that. It's, it's a difficult matter. So I'm really praying for uh, Roland and Kevin's prayers both to be answered powerfully that God would minister to you through his word. Because his, his word contains the power and God has chosen to use a very weak and feeble instrument in me this morning to, to explain it. So praying for God's help. One of the main responsibilities, I would say, of the Christian, and, and truly one of the highest responsibilities of the preacher, is to understand God's covenant with his people. Because in a covenant, you learn what God's promises are to you, and what your responsibilities are to him. So it sets our expectation level of God at the right spot. And it also helps us live in a way that is faithful to and walking in the truth of that covenant. And so one of the challenges is to explain and understand what the difference is between the, old, the older covenant. Between the new covenant. Jesus said very explicitly, this is the blood of the new covenant. We know that we are living in the days of the so-called new covenant. The new covenant was promised in the old, and it has been manifest in the new. And so, if I could helpfully, and I could be wrong about this, this is one of the great theological debates, but one of the simplest ways to understand the difference between the older covenant and the newer covenant is where... The law is and whose blood ratifies the covenant. Every covenant in uh, biblical times, blood had to be spilt to ratify that covenant. It was a sober way of sealing the word 
You've heard of a blood oath today or blood brothers. It's, a, it's an ancient reality that you would seal a covenant with blood. And the basic difference is that the law has moved from stone to the heart, your heart and my heart, and from bull's blood to Jesus' blood. Now that's important because this passage deals with one of the most confusing ways to distinguish the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And stop me if you've heard this before, but a lot of people distinguish by saying the Old Testament is law, the New Testament is gospel. But that's the way to understand the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I would submit to you that that is incorrect and it's confusing and it's unnecessary. Law and gospel do not compete. And gospel does not swallow up or erase or replace the law. That's not what Moses says here, and I, and I hope that that's key as we move forward, because that would suggest a whole erasing and transformation of the Old Testament that it never intended. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, the, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. God's words are not disposable. So where are we in Romans, and why did I start with that, like, maybe high-level thought of Old Covenant, New Covenant? Not exactly the attention grabber of a funny story that happened to me this week. But it's important because where we are in Romans right now, we are studying the failure of Israel. We're studying Israel's failure. That's important to us because Israel was the most privileged nation in the history of mankind up until the advent of Christ. They were given the law. They were given the miracles. They were saved from slavery. They were shown God's power. God lavished grace and mercy and second, third, fourth, fifth chances on them when they failed. And yet when Christ came, they rejected him. So we're looking at his, their failure both in terms of redemptive history, but also as a warning. Israel is a warning to us today not to fall short of the promises of God. Paul summarizes their failure by saying this, they didn't understand God's holiness. That comes from chapter 10, just a couple verses earlier, in, uh, in verse 1 and 2. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God, and so they sought to establish their own. So their failure was that they didn't understand God's holiness. And so if you embrace religion as a, as a sort of righteous standard that you think that you can attain, if you appreciate the Old Testament and want to follow it, especially the moral law, and if you don't come out with a humble fear of God's unlimited holiness, you have not understood the law. If the Old Testament, if the law of God makes you coming out feeling like, I can do this, I think I can establish a righteousness that God is going to respect, then you have never understood the law. This, of course, leads to an ultimate rejection of salvation because you don't submit to Jesus because you don't think you need help. That's the warning that Israel presents to us. If you don't understand God's holiness, then you'll reject Jesus out of hand because you won't need him. And so the, the issue of the gospel is that it's a heart condition. 
It's not one of intellect. If you reject God's holiness and establish your own, you have no heart need for Jesus. It's not an intellectual shortcoming. It's a heart and a pride shortcoming. So we need to understand that as we look at Moses here in verse 5. So my three headings are we have God's law and our life. The second question is where is the word? And then the answer in our third heading is the heart, the mouth, and the Lord. So the context of righteousness is, is critical here. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that a person who does the commandments shall live by them. Very important here that the context is not talking about somebody who tries and thirsts and hungers for righteousness and follows God's word to do it. Moses is not criticizing somebody who appreciates and pursues righteousness. Because righteousness is good. Righteousness is God's character. Righteousness is God's standard. The context here is talking about judicial, saving, justifying righteousness. That is a, a legal definition. Righteousness being what you need to be in God's presence. We know that from the context of the passage starting in verse uh, chapter 10 in the first couple of verses. He's talking about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, seeking to establish a foundation to build their lives upon that they believe that they could present to God as being worthy. Paul says that is a righteousness that if you want to go that way, you need to be perfect. If you want to justify yourself before God by the things that you do, He's saying you need to perfectly execute the law. God's law stands as a whole unit. And if you think that you can please God through perfection in the law, he says you can't even fall short once. There are no mulligans. If you have fallen short of God's law, then you are tainted and in need of forgiveness. Matthew 5, 8, out of Jesus' own mouth says, You shall be perfect, even as your Father is perfect. Galatians 3 explains that if a man wants to live by the law, he must fulfill the whole law. Every jot and tittle must be satisfied if you are to be righteous. Now, this promise that is set before them in terms of life we need to recognize that God gave another definition of righteousness in terms of the direction of the heart, not its judicial forgiveness. But what is the direction of the heart? Leviticus 18.5, Nehemiah 9.29, and Ezra 20.11, as well as Deuteronomy 30, God says, I am putting before you the law. I am putting before you life and good, evil and wickedness. And my judgment is, comes when you reject the righteousness of God. That is not that they sought to do it and they made a mistake. He's not talking about that judicial righteousness. Those promises to Israel were in terms of God blessing them because their hearts belonged to God. The direction of their heart was faith, and so they pursued righteousness that way. So do you see the, the difference? I pursue righteousness in my life, not as a means of pleasing God, 
but as an outflow of the righteousness that he's already given me before him. Does that make sense? So there are two different ways to speak of righteousness. So when Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that a person who does the commandments shall live by them, he's saying this is a person who rejects God's gracious gift of righteousness. And so they're establishing their own, they're going in their own way. And that is a, is a position of rebellion against God. So when God holds out this promise to Israel saying, if you pursue me, you will be given life, he's not saying you'll be saved. He's not saying you can justify yourself. He's saying that this is your return to God in humility. It's an act of faith and obedience. It's depicted by returning to the law, but it's not found in executing the law. The law preserves, it enlightens, and it protects the person who follows it. Even in Ephesians 6, when Paul reminds children to be obedient to your parents, he says there's a promise in that law that you will live long. Children who don't rebel against their parents are less in danger, if their parents are godly, they're less in danger of the snares of the world. So there is a promise in pursuing God's law that is, in an earthly sense, life. Not in an eternal sense, but in a life-preserving, enlightening, and protecting way. We also recognize that fulfilling the law is loving our neighbor. Not loving them into heaven. You can't love your neighbor into heaven by following the law or treating them in a lawful way. But it is a way of expressing earthly love in a godly, heavenly way. So the New Testament then, in terms of God's law, does not come to update our vision of the law, but to fully expose its purpose, to fully expose its teleology, the arrow that it points to. We saw that in verse uh, 4, that Christ is an end of the law for everyone who believes. That is not the end of the law. The law is gone. But the end of the law, meaning where is the law pointing to? It is Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that even more explicitly this morning. So where is the word? How does Paul explain how the law functions today? It's so neat how he goes to Deuteronomy 30 to do that. How should a Christian live? How can a person become, become a Christian in the first place? Paul takes us to Deuteronomy 30 verse 11 to explain any error that we have in our own hearts about where our righteousness comes from and to point our eyes to the truth. So when Israel received the law, which Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law, Dudo from two and then nomos meaning law, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. And at the end, God says to Israel, do you know that my law is not too difficult? Do you know that my law has not been hidden from you? It's actually very simple. It is near to you in your mouth and your heart. It is not a mystery what God demands. He has disclosed it. He has exposed it. The reason that we don't obey God is not because he doesn't show us how. That's very important. The reason you disobey God is not because God hasn't shown you how. Even nature demands of us a reverence towards God. The reason we don't obey God is because we are bound by sin. 
and its chains. The law has no problems in it. The problem is all in us. That's what earlier in Romans has taught us. But even in God's giving of the law, there is a mercy in that. It is his grace that he gives us the law, that he gives us his commands. Yes, it highlights our sin. But that in itself is an act of mercy of God. If you're ever hearing the word of God and you feel judged, you feel guilty, if your tendency is to blame the church that you're in, now this is in general, I'm not talking about people who openly judge you or openly condemn you, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an inner heart pressure from the Lord in what you're hearing exposing some sin in your life, if your tendency is to blame the church or blame the preacher, then you are rejecting God's mercy. The mercy that he exposes our sin when he puts out his righteous standard to us. It is a, it, that in itself is the very nearness of God. And so faith, he says, righteousness that is based on the law says I can look at the law and save myself. That's what that kind of righteousness lives by. I can look at the law and see myself in it. Paul says, faith looks at the law and sees Christ. That's the difference. And he exegetes this very clearly for us. The answer is the same in Deuteronomy and in Romans about what is in the law. What is the giving of the law? Where is it? It is in your heart and in your mouth. And yet, in Deuteronomy, it says that the law is near you in your mouth and your heart. And in Romans, it says that Christ is near you in your mouth and in your heart. So we see how the Old Testament promises this reality all along. That Christ, in fact, is the giving of the righteousness to his people. What does Paul say here? This is how faith receives the word of God. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? And then Paul adds, because Moses didn't write this, this part. Paul adds, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will bring, who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. So what he's saying is when, when faith hears God's commandment and sees it fulfilled, Faith that is based on your own righteousness begins to say, okay, where can I find this thing? Where can I go get this thing? I'm going to go on the hunt. Who's going to go into heaven and get it? Who's going to travel into the abyss and discover it? That is, Paul says, to bring Christ down. In other words, if you see God's command and begin wondering, oh, how can I ever do it? You are failing to recognize that it is Christ who's been revealed. It is Christ who's been delivered. He has not hidden his word in heaven, for Christ did come down and manifest God's word. He has not hidden it in the sea, for Christ was also raised from the dead. God's secrets weren't buried with Jesus in the grave. God has so fully disclosed his word that we can't see it in any other way but as imminently close to us. Some people say, well, I could never understand the Bible. Most people that you speak to have never really opened it and read it. 
who would say that. God has manifest his word. Jesus came down out of heaven. It says, not considering equality with God as a thing to be held on to, but he shed that divine appearance and came as a humble man, yet fully embodying the nature of God. And when he died, he was not condemned to the grave, but he was raised from the dead. And so the word has been fully manifest and made a reality for you and me. Where has this word, this word incarnate, found a home? Again, Deuteronomy 30 and Romans 10 have the same answer. In your mouth and in your heart, this is where God makes a home for his word. This is a challenge for you. God's word does you no good if it is not in a home in your heart and in your mouth. The good news is not good to you unless it has found a home in you. Unless you have made yourself the dwelling place of the word. The word must find a home in your mouth and in your heart. This is also how we can understand why Jesus so often commanded us to obey. Again, we don't want to artificially dissolve uh, or we don't want to artificially divide the Old Testament and the New Testament. That the Old Testament was about obedience and the New Testament is about grace. Jesus himself said, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Later in the next chapter, Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command. Luke 6, 46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? Jesus takes the exact same exegetical approach to his people as God did through Moses. Here are my commandments. Keep them and live. And he say, Tim, you're sounding mighty like you're preaching a gospel of works. Not in the least. Even in Deuteronomy, it says, don't go looking around thinking you can satisfy the righteousness of God. It has found a home in your heart and in your mouth. The standard for holiness has not changed, and the demand upon your life has not changed. Obedience is required for salvation. And what we gain in the new covenant is the name of the Messiah, the name of the Savior, the name of the King, the final sacrifice, and the direct an unbreakable means of salvation. So we want to look at the heart and the mouth, and I want to hopefully satisfy the discomfort that you're feeling about what I'm saying. What's not included here is how the word in our mouth and the heart specifically manifest or bear fruit. They both center on the life and identity of Jesus Christ. How does the word find a home in your mouth and in your heart? It centers on how you view Jesus Christ. If you believe that the law, when confessed, will save you, you will not be saved. If you believe in your heart that the law is good, but do not submit to Jesus Christ, you will not be saved. You must look at the law and see the all-sufficient Savior. To fulfill God's law, we must acknowledge that he has provided for the demands of the law. And we acknowledge this in two different places in our bodies, our mouth and our heart. 
Each one of these manifestations signifies a critical aspect of your new life. What does Paul say? The word is near you in your mouth. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So Paul takes an Old Testament category to describe your New Testament salvation. Did you, did you catch that? That if God said in the Old Testament that the word is in your mouth and in your heart, that must correspond to your New Testament life. The New Testament doesn't invent new categories. It takes the Old Testament categories and fulfills them in the knowledge of Christ. So where is the first place? If you, can, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Why is the mouth important? Jesus, if you read through the Gospels, he often... Speaking to those who were listening, asked them to say something to him. If you read through, look for that very carefully. When he spoke to the paralytic, he said, do you want to be healed? He spoke to the blind person. What is it that you need? He's, he asked questions and he received confessions from those who were listening. When he said to the woman caught in adultery... Who is there to condemn you? She responded, no one. And he said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Your mouth is a public signal of your submission to God's highest authority, Jesus Christ. It is your signal that you have abandoned and surrendered your rebellion. It is literally a signal of surrender from your old life. That God has established his king, his king and you have conceded his victory. Very often kings are established and there are still rebellions going on. It doesn't challenge the authority of the king, but it puts those in rebellion in a very uh, threatened place. Because when the king is in authority, ongoing rebellion eventually must be destroyed. So when we confess Jesus as Lord, we say to him, you are the rightful king and I Submit to you. And again, that goes back to the context that they did not submit to God's righteousness. That's a submission, that confession. We do that with our children all the time, don't we? It's helpful when you're parenting to have your child speak out the truth. Do you understand what you did wrong? Yes. Can you explain it to me? Yes. What would you do next time? What is the righteous course of action? When we speak it, it, it is a manifestation of where we are at in our, in our minds. Our confession results in salvation, which means when the king comes back, when the king returns to judge the whole earth, your confession will be remembered on that day. Your submission to Jesus Christ will be remembered when he returns in vengeance and judgment on the last day. Our submission is manifest through our confession that we confess to the Lord. Do you ever, in your prayers, confess Christ as Lord? Make it a part of your prayers. Lord, you are Lord of all. You are sovereign, you are true, and you have all authority on earth and in heaven. 
Now, what does he say about the heart? If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. What's that about? Are those two different forms of salvation? Isn't saved and justified the same thing? Uh, no, it's, they're not. They're not exactly. They go hand in hand and lockstep with one another, but they are two, it's a twofold evidence of the faith that makes us a Christian. When we confess, it says that we are saved. I'm sorry, yeah, when we confess we are saved and when we believe we are justified. Belief from the heart is to acknowledge the promise of God, to acknowledge and submit to the promises of God, to trust in his word. Romans 4 showed us that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That is, that we were justified. We were given a righteous standing before God. The moment that you believe, God gives you a righteous standing before him. He no longer views you as guilty. That is a momentary, immediate effect of your salvation. Your salvation is not just in the future. God actually looks at you in a new way and does not attribute to you the guilt that you deserve. So if you are laden with guilt this morning, you must believe that God raised his son from the dead and God will justify you. He will call you righteous today because of the resurrected righteousness of Jesus. But also when we confess we are saved, that word saved actually refers to a future event. The scripture is 1 Peter talks about a salvation being kept in heaven for us. There's a future event that we will be saved from. What is that event? It is the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Because when you are declared righteous, you must also have assurance that the king is not going to judge you for all the sins that you commit thereafter. How do we know that we'll be secure before the throne of judgment? We confess that Jesus is Lord and that he is rightful to judge. Now, this twofold evidence makes some people nervous because they think that it's adding a work to your salvation. Some people think, well, Jesus just said, believe and you'll be saved. If it's also confessing, then that's a work that you have to do to be saved. The Bible doesn't consider that a work that saves you. Some people say that confession is optional, even though it's important. That obedience or belief in your heart is all that it takes to be saved, and yet you can go on living as if you are, or Satan are still Lord. That you can believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and be justified, but that the confession part, well, that may or may not ever happen. As if those are separate events. I've heard this described by Christians who look at people who prayed a prayer one time when they were young, or they prayed a prayer at a youth event, so they got saved, but then their life, their life has never confessed Jesus as Lord. Christ has never become Lord over their lives. And they say, well, but they believed. So it doesn't matter who's Lord of their life. Jesus, you know, that could come later or maybe not at all. The scriptures say, no, these are integral to put together. 
as if you can live in practical disobedience because you have not recognized that Jesus has authority over you. This is patently unbiblical from every page in Scripture, and it's a wrong division. It's our confession of his lordship which results in final salvation, but the two are inseparable. I want to quote from William uh, O'Neill. He's a Dutch dude, a Dutch theologian. He says, one cannot be saved if, if one does not accept Jesus as Savior only. Did you hear that? You cannot be saved, saved if you accept Jesus as Savior only. This is why we refer to him as Lord and Savior. He says, you cannot be saved if you accept Jesus as Savior only. In other words, one should accept not only the gospel of God's grace for sinners, but also the gospel of the kingdom of God. The former gospel brings a person into the church and takes him to heaven. The latter, being the kingdom of God, brings him into the kingdom and makes him a follower of Jesus on earth. I know that's a little bit dense, and I know that's a, that's a little bit outside maybe of the realm of your thinking. But Jesus talked about the kingdom of the God, uh, the, the gospel of the kingdom all the time. But we also hear about the gospel of grace. Those are not two different gospels. They are two elements of the same gospel. You confess your sin and receive Jesus as your savior, and you confess him as Lord and you receive him as your king. These two things go together in how we view Jesus' authority. This is why... We take particular commandments in all of the scriptures when they are challenged very seriously. For what does lordship mean? We talked about this a few weeks ago. If Jesus is truly Lord, but we think that his commandments are optional, then we're saying, ah, oh, the lordship part is important, but it's secondary. We can put off obedience to Jesus until next week, until next season. Until when it's safer. We can put off our obedience to Jesus for now because what's important is that he's our savior. Deuteronomy doesn't give you that option. Romans 10 doesn't give you that option. Jesus is Lord if he is your savior. Jesus' lordship is first confession, but it's a confession which is led by the heart of submission to the word and deed of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but the one who does the will of my Father. Is Jesus making salvation conditional on your performance? No, but he's making it conditional on how you view him as Lord. How do we obey? How do we manifest this word in our heart and our mouth? We confess Jesus as Lord. That is the work of God. 1 John 1 says, This is the work that God commanded us, that we believe in his only Son. This is how you fulfill the works of God. But built into that is an obedience to Jesus Christ. Here's what you get here as well, and I want to encourage you with this. What you get out of this presentation of the gospel, this angle of the gospel, is immediacy. You may be the worst sinner on earth. You probably aren't, but maybe you are. 
you may be the most unworthy person of God's kindness. You may have walked away from what you knew was true, and now coming back you say, I'm not worthy. What you get here is a nearness and an immediacy to the gospel. If you want to become a Christian, you don't need to scale a ladder into heaven. You don't need to trek on a dangerous pilgrimage. You don't need to complete a checklist of righteous standards. You need to confess with your mouth sincerely that Jesus is Lord, and you need to believe in the truth of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus for your sins. And you will be saved. Did you hear that in the scriptures? See that there. It is near in your heart and your mouth. Verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There is an immediacy to the promise of God, to the word of God. You don't have to pull out your phone and look anything up. You don't have to call a friend and make sure it's the right answer. If you are hearing the word of God and your heart is being drawn to the promises of God, believe and confess and you will be saved. Your destiny forever changed. Your, your home in heaven forever secured. You get an immediacy that you do not find anywhere else in any other worldview. We have an assurance that is built into our lives today. We have salvation and nearness to God today in this place at this time. How many wonderful examples of this do we get in the New Testament? We have the thief on the cross who said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. We have the barbarian who went to the temple and beat his chest and said, God, I am an unworthy sinner. And Jesus said, that man went home justified. Forgiven, given a new life, made a Christian. We have the leper at the pool to whom Jesus said, would you like to be healed? And he said, I have no one to bring me into the water. And Jesus himself healed him without even bringing him to the water. He didn't even have to go 13 steps or whatever it was down to the pool. The immediacy of the healing of God and the forgiveness of God is palpable in Scripture. What about the Ethiopian eunuch who's traveling along and perplexed in the scriptures and hungering and thirsting for righteousness but doesn't understand Christ? And then Andrew explains it to him and he sees the lordship of Christ and he says, what prevents me from being baptized? Nothing but a pool of water. Even Paul himself, who was on his way to destroy Christians, living a wicked life in direct contradiction to God, destroying God's own bride for his son. He was knocked off his horse in a moment and recognized the lordship of Christ and was saved that very day. And so next week we're going to look very excitedly, in my mind, at, the, at a mini great commission. Verse 14 how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe of whom they have not heard? So there's an important aspect here to the church that this immediacy in some part depends on your obedience to God. That you would bring this word, recognizing that it is only the word that can save people. Which is, by the way, why Paul says this is the word that we preach. I have nothing else to say to you except the word of God. I have nothing else to give you hope except 
the lordship of Christ and believing in his, in his life. But as we close, before we look at that next week, it's very easy, and this is a very theological sermon, it's very easy to stay at the level of mere theology. Not that theology is not important, but that it's a foundation that we build up from. We don't just lay the foundation and say, well, isn't that a beautiful foundation? Some of you built a house recently. We don't stand there, you know, wow, oh, this is just a beautiful foundation. You build off of that. And what do you build? You frame walls. You're not satisfied with frame walls. You, you sheet the outside. You insulate the walls. You put drywall. And then you paint the drywall. And you carpet it or hardwood. And you make, you make a tap that water runs out of. It is meant to be lived in. It is meant to be furnished to the utmost extent. Your lives ought to be furnished based on the foundation of the, gospel, the law and the gospel together. Your life ought to be furnished in terms of obedience to Jesus Christ. So if you think of your Christian faith as a mere insurance policy that you can go live your own way with you as Lord, you're standing there on a building lot with no sod, looking at a foundation and saying, this baby is fantastic. Wait till the storms come. Where are you going to hide? You're not going to hide under the law on its own. You're going to hide under Christ who holds the law and fulfills the law. The force of the gospel forces us to reckon with righteousness. And the totality of our obedience must culminate in the confession of Jesus as Lord, or it is no obedience at all. We must see the words of Christ as binding on us. The whole exhortation of the scriptures as as obedience. Now, so we say, whoa, Tim, are you wearing a, a shirt of two fabrics? We can deal with that in Bible study on Wednesday if you want. I'm not saying the minutia of every aspect of the law is necessary for you. But there's theological reasons for that. That's not just picking and choosing, as some people would want you to believe. But when it comes to loving our neighbors and obeying the Ten Commandments and obeying the scriptures that Jesus poured out for us in his life and then through his servants. We must recognize that we are bound by those words. Those are our marching orders. We saw last week that our freedom in this world is manifest by slavery to God. Our freedom is expressed in the fact that we are slaves to a good master. William O'Neill uh, writes a couple pages later in, in, uh, in this book. He says, One could hardly imagine a person willing to receive everything from Jesus if he would not be willing to give everything to Jesus. Let me say that again. One could hardly imagine a person willing to receive everything from Jesus if he would not be willing to give everything to Jesus. His heart, his life, his possessions. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus began with the question, Who are you, Lord? Followed by the question, What shall I do? The two go naturally together. We cannot in hard times begin to think that we can separate our future salvation from our present obedience. Temporary disobedience, it has been said, is still disobedience. And make no mistake that we are entering 
days and times when we will be tempted to see obedience to, the, to Jesus Christ as optional. When we confess Christ as Lord, we will assume and must assume total loyalty. That loyalty to Jesus may result in riches and prominence in your life, like Nebuchadnezzar. But that loyalty may also lead to poverty and death. We don't choose the outcome of our lives. But loyalty to Christ doesn't depend on that, does it? Loyalty to Christ depends on his word and, and study and submission and obedience. But it is the happiest obedience you could possibly know. A guy listened to a podcast. He says, everybody's a slave to one or the other. Are you going to choose a wicked slave master or are you going to choose the merciful, loving slavery to God's righteousness? Some of you look back on your old life of sin and you say, yeah, that was slavery. Is that a slavery that builds you up, that leads you to life, or is it a slavery that draws you back to destruction? Slavery to God and his righteousness through Jesus Christ leads to life. It leads to fellowship. It leads to glory. It is a slavery that gives life. Christianity, for many of us, has been the color that we choose to fill in the religious corner of the pie graph. You ever seen a pie graph divided into five or ten different location or categories? And some of us, for Christianity, we take the Christianity pencil crayon and we say, okay, where's the, where's the religion corner? Ah, right there. Say, good. Now my religion is Christian. What happens to the rest of the pie graph? Christianity takes a big highlighter and goes like this. The whole pie graph becomes Christ's. Your religious devotion, your educational choices, the way you handle your finances, the way you talk to your neighbors, the job that you have and how you conduct it, the way that you vote tomorrow, everything belongs to Jesus Christ and is subject to his scrutiny and the wisdom of the word of God. So don't take your salvation and say, that's my little pie chart right here. That's what I do on Sundays. Uh, and then the rest of everything else is my business. That's not the command. Lordship is the whole pie graph. It's still divided into important categories. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you just spend, become a monk, move into the church. You can't move into my house. You still have to live your life. And you still get to live your life. You still get to become a scientist. You still get to become a politician. You still get to become a professional skateboarder. Whatever it is that God's calling you and gifted you to do. You still have all of those important categories in your life. The difference is Christ becomes the Lord of every single one. So we are never to, to separate our salvation from any of those important matters in our life. We can't say, well, Jesus, I'll get back to you once I get push this important deal through. We say to Christ, how would you push... How would you have me push this deal through? How would you have me to deal with my coworkers? How would you have me to deal with this policy that's being put before me this week? It all belongs to Jesus Christ and it all is subject to his righteousness. But he loves you. That's not an ominous thing. That's why the belief in the promise is important too. He loves you. That's why submitting these things is good for you and for him. He's not cracking a whip on your life saying... You know, serve me or die. He loves you in salvation. And your efforts to submit your life to him 
are something that he births in you and gives you strength and courage and knowledge to do. He loves you. Scriptures say we love him by obeying his commandments. We love him because he first loved us. The gospel is not devoid of that critical condescension that God did to us. He came down and saved us when we were unworthy. And we respond by submitting our entire lives to him. And the scripture says, He who believes or calls on the name of the Lord will not be disappointed. I'm praying that as you submit your life to Christ, you will see his goodness unfolding in your life. If you find disappointment, it is in ourselves. We're disappointed in our own sins and failures to submit to God. But the fullness of the gospel manifests in our lives, producing joy and obedience. And that is our refuge. Our refuge is not in how well we are pleasing God. Don't take refuge in your performance. Don't take refuge in your obedience. Take refuge in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And out of that, pursue obedience. It's all in how you order them that you'll find either despair or total confidence and life in Christ. 